Hello. Uh, so I thought I would put this up and record a <clears throat> quick podcast for today. Um, I'm going to start this off a little bit differently. I usually say this at the end of every single one, but we're in the middle of this whole pandemic with coronavirus. And I just want to say, uh, wherever you are, I hope you're healthy and uh, you're keeping safe. Um, and you and your loved ones are, you know, being able to be in contact with each other. Um, I'm really glad I don't have like a... <clears throat> I don't have like an enfeebled or dying parent anywhere or, you know, somebody I would like to get to that I, I can't because of the current situation. Uh, I see I, I'm basically in contact to the extent that I need to be with everyone I, I love and care about. And I hope that's true for you, too, uh, wherever you are and whoever you are. And let's see what else. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it looks to me. Oddly enough, like there actually are some people that I don't know who might be finding this and listening to it. Uh, it looks like the the views I'm getting or the listens uh, are not just people that I know personally. So I thought I would introduce myself at the beginning of this one and say, I'm Jim. I'm a software engineer in um, the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm currently between jobs. Uh, I left my last job just before the um, shelter in place order broke out. I've been... Uh, doing something of a, a sort of a monastic lifestyle in uh, the interim. I've only just very recently started looking for jobs, and uh, I think I'm uh, narrowing in on uh, probably the next gig I'm going to join after six months. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't know what other background I could give of you that would uh, help you. Uh, it is Sunday morning, about noon, uh, and... Uh, last night I started watching a version of Les Miserables on, it's on Amazon Prime, I think for the month of August. And it was made by PBS. Um, now that's a story I've definitely wanted to get my hands on. Like I've wanted to, to see it in a good film form for a while. And not as a musical. I, I don't, if you were going to adapt stories as, as, as a musical, if you were going to pick a novel to adapt as a musical. I'm not sure I would have chosen Les Miserables. Like it's like taking uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky and making that a musical. Like I just don't see that being quite appropriate. Um, but anyway, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to see the story, not in a terribly reduced fashion. Like it's a long enough novel that I don't think you can reduce it to two hours. Um, without losing a lot of the complexity of the story. And again, I haven't read it, but I know that it's a long enough book cannot be reduced to um, two hours. And uh, I just wanted to see a, a version of it, like kind of get the broad elements of the plot as a kind of cliff's notes before I actually dive into reading the novel um, without singing and dancing. And to be honest, the rendition that I saw on PBS or on Amazon Prime, was actually very, very good. It came out in 2019, uh, I think in May. It aired over a series of like six weeks. It was um, it's really quite good and highly recommended if you're interesting in, interested in the story and, uh, you know, don't want to read the whole book. That seems like that captures the larger elements and, uh, yeah, really demonstrates how Victor Hugo had a way of putting a story together and it's uh, it's it feels just as moving as I imagine the novel would be. Well, I still plan on reading 
the novel itself. Um, yeah, just the, the, the sense of duty that people feel in that story to others. Um, I had a thought that, uh, you know, right now my parents are back in Detroit and my father has a mild cognitive impairment. He's, um, it's not full-blown dementia. He still knows who people are. He still knows where he is. He still has a pretty good sense of who he is and he remembers most of the major elements of his past. And, uh, but you know, he's not quite who he was 10 years ago. There's still something missing. And in the midst of all this shelter in place, there has been some, uh, anxiety that seems to be getting worse as of late. So I thought to myself, okay, what I'm going to do with today is I'm going to go to a stationary store and get myself a stack of envelopes and cards and, uh, I'm going to try and send him a letter once a week. Uh, he, he's not somebody who has ever enjoyed talking on the phone. Even when he had, he was of, even when he had all his faculties, he had all of his senses. Uh, he, he really was not one to talk on the phone. It was always very, very awkward with him. Yeah, it probably is awkward with me. I'm not much of a phone person either or a texter. It's not really my preferred mode of, uh, communication. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to try and send him a letter once a week. Just write it on some paper and uh, let him know how I'm doing. Let him know that I'm doing well and see if I can, uh, I don't know, slip some ideas in there that might uh, help quash some of the anxiety he's feeling. Uh, I'm kind of curious if I can kind of Trojan horse that into him, but I don't know. I'll figure out if I can do that or not. Um Let's see, what I really wanted to talk about was something I was thinking about just before I decided to put this on and start recording, and that is the tension of the opposites. Uh, this is this is an idea that I think I touch upon always. Uh, I'm a Gemini, so I have that duality in my personality even more so than every human just naturally does. Um, I was on one of the, the dating apps recently, and there was a question that you could fill out that said, what has been the biggest influence on you politically? Like what thing has had the biggest uh, influence on your own political perspective? And my answer to that, after I thought about it for a couple of minutes, was uh, an old indie movie from 1995 called The Last Supper. Now, Last Supper, it sounds religious, but it actually has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. Um, in brief, it is a it is a story about five very very liberal graduate students living in a co-op in a rural area that's nearby a university where they are going to school. And circumstantially, they they end up deciding to start inviting over far right conservative people who disagree with their own political ideologies, uh, try to change their minds. And if they can't convince them to change their minds, then they decide to kill them. So this sort of comes about in a very haphazard way. Um, it is a tradition of theirs when the movie begins that they have somebody over for dinner every Sunday just for conversation. And one of them, their car breaks down and somebody helps them uh, kind of fix up the car, uh, and gives him a ride home. And, uh, so they invite him in 
for dinner because their, their other guest canceled. And so this one character uh, who's visiting them, who was their, their, their first guest at their dinner table in the film is played by Bill Paxton. Very, very good performance. Uh, and he, he turns out he's a, a veteran of Desert Storm. He's a, a kind of a far right, um, very conservative, very racist kind of archetype. Um, and he sort of makes the point to them, like, yeah, you, you leftists, you don't, uh, you don't, uh, you know, ever do anything. You're just all talk and no action. And he threatens one of them with a knife. Um, and so, you know, one thing leads to another and they, they, they kill him in what could only loosely be described as self-defense. And so they, they're sort of stricken with the horror of what they've done. And they say, okay, well, let's, we don't want to ruin our futures over this scumbag. So let's just, uh, let's just bury him in the backyard, ditch his car, uh, somewhere. And, uh, let's just forget about it. Let's move on with our lives. Then, of course, they're sitting around talking sort of philosophically as, you know, college students and especially graduate students are wont to do. And they say, OK, well, maybe this guy had a point, you know, we're not really doing anything. We're just sort of sitting around letting evil go by in the world. So they go through the old thought experiment of what if you were alive in 1909 and you met Hitler before either of the wars had happened? You know, would you... Would you kill him in order to prevent the war from happening? And so they sort of say, well, maybe it's our responsibility to find people who are potential future Hitlers and to kill them before they can perpetrate their immoral ideologies. And this is this is where the thing is, the film is not perfect. It's a very indie film. I think there are maybe 15 people cast in the whole thing. It's not a very large film um the performances are not all that strong throughout let's say bill paxton and, and ron perlman's characters are notable like uh exceptions to that but uh it seems like it was filmed rather hastily the script is it makes the point that it's supposed to make but it's not super strong and uh uh but it is a good film because it ends up where it concludes is not with the message that leftist ideology is better than right ideology. Of course, if that were the movie, I would not be talking about it right now. That would be silly. Um, throughout the film, there is a kind of TV talking head, like some sort of Bill O'Reilly and Coulter Rush Limbaugh type who's on television and he's spouting off some, some conservative sounding viewpoints, you know, ridiculing feminists, that sort of thing. Um, and circumstantially, in the film's final scene, he ends up at their table uh, eating with them. And essentially, they come to find out he's not quite as far right as uh, he presents himself uh, in public. His public persona is somewhat uh, radical because he wants to, he says it's the ratings thing. He's basically doing it to get publicity. And with that publicity, he's hoping to disseminate more moderate viewpoints. And really, in conversation with him, he is much more moderate. Uh, so what does this have to do with how did this influence my political perspective? Um, 
it's something that he says in the final scene where they're, they're, they're asking him about his political views. And uh, he says something to the, uh, the effect of, it's true, you have harmful people on the extreme right and the extreme left, but I suggest that the more extreme all those opposites become, the more moderate the society becomes. Because when you average out all those extremes, you end up with a society that's pretty well anchored in the middle. And such a society is probably most appropriate to where most of us want to live. You know, if you have the fringes uh, at the bell, on the bell curve, if those end up averaging out somewhere in the middle, then you have the majority of people in the middle of the bell curve um, living in a society that is roughly geared towards them. The idea made a lot of sense to me when I first heard it roughly 20 years ago. And I sort of realized that, yeah, it's it's not that the left is right or the right is left. Or sorry, the right is right. That was a nice... It was a nice confusing uh, turn of words, but it's not that either side is right uh, and you have to figure out which side is right. The point is there, there's virtue in both sides. There's a kind of a point that is worth salvaging in both sides and there is the potential for evil to come from both sides. So the film, the film, the point the film makes could be exactly the same if you reversed it. If you had five very conservative graduate students and there's this liberal who ends up showing up at the end, um, a liberal, you know, talking head who ends up being much more moderate, you, you could play the film out in exactly the same way and it would make the same exact point. So it's not a partisan film in any way. Um, I'm actually surprised that this film hasn't gotten more publicity lately. Um, it seems like uh, the left has become very, very vocal uh, with its ideology and it's uh, taken to kind of shutting down people online. Sort of uh, somebody espouses something that is uh, less than progressive. Uh, it is generally ridiculed or outright attacked. Um, the fact that the right hasn't like dug this up and said, oh yeah, Hollywood actually produced a film which is kind of outwardly critical of the left uh, some 25 years ago. Uh, kind of strange to me. It seems like that would be a nice feather in its cap, uh, the, the right-leaning people now. Um, or anyone who like takes exception to modern-day extreme leftist ideology. And of course, like I, like I said, the point I was I was aiming to make on a trajectory to make is that the film is not perfect. Um, I, what would it take for five graduate students living in a house somewhere to like lose their entire connection to humanity and to start killing people? Uh, I don't know. And quite frankly, the film does not help me understand that any better. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of a slow paced film. And again, not the best produced. It's more, I think the story is important. I think the story makes a very good point and it's one of my favorite films for that reason. Um, but it's the idea of the balance of the opposites. I think that is where, uh, I think that's where my point lies. I, I think that that's what I've come to accept is that really you can't look for stability and have that be your, your terminus. It can't be your starting point at the very least. There is an old uh, saying that says like, uh, 
I don't know where it comes from. Online, I've seen it attributed to like one of the ancient Greeks. Can't remember who, but I've never been able to substantiate this. The idea that you should follow those who are seeking the truth and run from those who claim to have found it. So the, the another idea that's expressed elsewhere is that if you begin in certainties, you'll end in doubts. But if you start with doubts, you will end in certainties. So I think that's kind of the point I would uh, I would tend to make towards people that really there's there are two extremes, but neither extreme is really fully correct. And of course, I've made the political point before. Um, the issue that I'm fond of using is uh, immigration. So at the one extreme, you have, uh, let's say, the white nationalists. You have uh, Richard Spencer and his so-called alt-right group, which is basically neo-Nazism uh, masquerading under a more PR-friendly name, uh, the alt-right. That sounds, uh, sounds so harmless, you know? Um, just political. Uh, now, I don't think there's many virtues in this. Uh, I certainly don't look at white nationalism and say, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a kernel of truth in that. Like, ideas that are that extreme are ideas you do not want to be flirting with. Now, what value would I see in white nationalism? I think if you take it down and you don't make it about oppressing minorities or getting rid of minorities who are not of European descent, not majority European descent, for example, and you say, okay, what they are, what they are trying to espouse is an idea of the importance of cultural identity and trying to preserve that. That I think makes sense. That's not really what neo-Nazis are about, but I think it's that sense that leads to that form of extremism, which says we don't care for any outsiders. You know, the, the idea of, oh, you ain't from around here, are you, boy? That is way too extreme. It's not defensible in any, in any moral or practical sense. But the idea that we shouldn't just open up the borders and let anyone in because we may end up dissolving who we are as a people and our own identity. Uh, there is, I think, something to that. And of course, on the other side, there's the idea of, um, well, letting everyone in. There are no immigration policies whatsoever. Uh, anyone who wants to come in is welcome to. And of course, I, I, I think I've already alluded to what problem would come up if, if you went to this extreme, like basically just you, you would lose. I think there's enough people that would want to come here and enjoy our freedoms that it's possible that uh, the freedoms that we have would disappear. The stability of, of civilization of the United States, just as one specific example, uh, rests on a very thin stratum of uh, people who understand what our values are and understand how to preserve them, understand that they've been worth fighting for and that they need to be fought for 
continuously. Eternal vigilance and all that. And there are, of course, plenty of barbarians who are living sheltered under our sense of humanitarianism and our sense of justice. And they're waiting very anxiously with uh, the torches to bring it down as soon as they can, as soon as we let our guard down. There are people out there, not in the United States, who do wish us ill. And it shouldn't be underestimated what kind of threat they might pose to us if we were to let ourselves weaken. That's not everyone. I honestly don't think there are many people in Mexico who are saying down with the United States, let's take it over. They're not looking to annex the United States, but there are factions of people out there who pose a threat. It may not be immediate and it may not be severe, uh, but it's, I think there's, there's, there's threats out there that are always one of those two. And again, eternal vigilance. So the question of like, where should we land with immigration? Well, hopefully it lands somewhere in the middle. Hopefully you have just enough resistance to letting people in that you don't just let the borders fly open and everyone comes in and, uh, we lose our sense of identity. Uh, but hopefully you let in enough people because there is value in diversity. And you do get benefits from some diversity, um, but just with the understanding that, of course, uh, more diversity uh, is not um, you know, monotonically increasing. There's a point of diminishing returns uh, where those returns may actually start to be negative. If you let in too many people, you've gone too far. So both extremes are wrong, but both extremes exist, and where policy ends up is somewhere in the middle, and that seems very appropriate. Um, that's, of course, a very, very broad topic, and I think it's a very, very hard issue to address. Uh, the question of um, just how many people we ought to be letting into the country, who we should be letting in, like what are the merits? You know, should we be assessing intelligence, you know, like, economic opportunities or what they bring to, uh, you know, the economy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answers to these questions and I wouldn't pretend that I, I, I do know. I think it's a broader discussion that has to be had with people who are familiar with the topic. Uh, my point here is only about the tension of the opposites. That really, I don't know if you could just have a, this is the question. I don't know if you could just have a bunch of people who exist in the middle. If we all sort of agreed harmoniously, here's exactly the, the right level of immigration. Um, I don't think that's natural. I don't think human beings are capable of that. I don't think we're capable of all kind of coming to a consensus and agreeing with each other. You only have consensus to the extent that you have conflict. And that conflict has to be harmonized in order for society to work. And so really, I think it comes down to just living with both of those opposite tensions at the same time. There are a lot of people who are um, who would point to something like the Bible and say that because it is full of contradictions and conflicts, because the story cannot be reconciled to itself, 
that we must simply throw it away, that none of it is true. And yet there are a lot of tensions to it. Um, there are inconsistencies in the story. Uh, Les Miserables uh, makes a very good uh, analogy to this, I think. The, the uh, uh, Jean Valjean, the main character, the story's hero, um, represents uh, the notion of mercy, where people have wronged him, or where they seem like they may wrong him. He, he, he is lenient. He grants them clemency. He grants them understanding and forgiveness. And his counterpoint is his villain, um, the, uh, the inspector that pursues him throughout the film and tries to capture him and put him in jail for his past. Uh, he represents justice taken to an extreme. And so if you look at the Bible, like the theme of the Old Testament, as far as I can tell, is justice. The notion that there is a God that will punish you if you do not behave. When you get to the New Testament, it seems to be a little bit different. It's like, okay, yes, punish. The punishment is, of course, there, but mercy is important as well. Forgiveness is just as important as seeking retribution. So are these two concepts reconcilable with each other? Perhaps not. Perhaps it depends. But I think to the extent that you take them both on and sort of harmonize them into one thing uh, and say they're both part of the same system, then you have a balance. Yes, you, you do need to uh, instill justice in things, but you can't, uh, you can't take that too far. Either extreme is... Uh, but one extreme is too draconian, the other is too permissive. So they have to both be there, and they have to exist in a balance that lends some stability. I think that's the inherent contradiction, that's the paradox of all of this, is that you do need disharmony in an idea in order for it to persist in culture. It's precisely because Christianity cannot be reconciled to itself, because it has a bunch of inherent instabilities in itself that it has persisted, because it can mean one thing to one group of people and something else to another group of people. You have justification by faith and justification by works. Which is it? Well, both sides can argue, and both sides are able to draw upon scripture and roughly the same measure to back up their own viewpoint. And of course, there are some theologies that say it's both. Uh, and those are complicated, but that's kind of the point. There's lots of theologies that sort of embrace both of those ideas, even though there's a tension between the two. And of course, this is the, this is the collective psyche of a society. It requires tension of the opposites. Um, I heard somebody say recently, I think it might have been Ben Shapiro uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast, say that like Western civilization is basically a suspension bridge between Greek rationalism, like Greek rational philosophy, and sort of Judeo-Christian uh, 
traditions, which are more metaphysical than physical. So these two things cannot be reconciled with each other. Like if, if you if you want to reduce it to two words, like science and religion, for example, these two things cannot be reconciled to each other, in my estimation. That's kind of the point. Uh, they are two opposites that in their tension lead to a kind of stability because you need both of those elements um, in order for things to work. You need rationalism so people are able to be able to operate rationally, but you can't deny that there is something to the emotionally subjective experience of a person. If you simply say it's you're going to operate coldly and rationally, essentially you're just letting your own identity get sucked into um, the rationalism of society. Human beings are not that cold and unfeeling. There was a uh, there was a Netflix series I watched recently called Russian Doll, which takes the whole you know um, protagonist is caught in a time loop uh, motif, and makes a little uh, series out of it, like a eight or ten episode series out of it, and it's something I really enjoy. Like I'll, I never get sick of those. Whenever a film is, hey, you know the the time loop idea, like I think it started with Groundhog Day. Whenever this is done, I always love it. I've never seen a plot or a film like this that I don't enjoy. For some reason, it just always hits home. Anyway, in this Russian doll series, the main character is, of course, looking for why she is in a time loop. And it leads her to a synagogue, and she's asking a rabbi about... She's trying to ask without telling her what's... you know, mentioning what's really going on with her. And he makes a point. He says that, like, there there is wisdom out there in the world which is accessible to human beings but not via the intellect. So essentially it's a matter of shutting the intellect down, of shutting rationality down and tapping into that somehow. I'd be very, very surprised if there was anyone listening to this that wouldn't know roughly what I mean by that. They wouldn't have a sense that there's some truth in that idea. And so... Both, I think, are necessary. I think they're necessary for a civilization. And of course, as a psyche is for a collective group of people, so it is for an individual. And so I think that is the, that is how a person becomes healthy, is when you can reconcile the opposites to yourself, when you can hold both of them in your mind and still be a functioning human being. You can look at some things scientifically and look at some other things religiously, if you will, and you're able to do both without there being a contradiction in your own personality or a contradiction of your own values. If you can harmonize both opposites into yourself, this is how I think you become a fully, this is how you complete yourself as a human being. It's at least a good start. It may not be the end. And probably reconciling all the opposites into yourself is uh, probably a lifelong process. And of course, that's probably where most people lie. I've actually talked to a couple people lately who express something similar. Um, people in San Francisco who say, well, really, you know, I'm very liberal and always have been. But, you know, uh, Donald Trump won for a reason. 
I don't understand that reason. And I don't think that simply pointing at all the people that voted for Donald Trump, close to 50% of the uh, population of the United States and say, they're all stupid. That doesn't really get us anywhere because one, that can't be true. They can't all be dumb. You can't just write them all off. That's the easiest thing to do. That may be the most comfortable thing to do, but it's the wrong thing to do. Besides, you have to, even if you agree with that, you have to understand that the 50% of people who voted for Donald Trump, a lot of them are saying the exact same thing about you. How on earth could you have possibly voted for Hillary? Can't you see that she's evil? And so it doesn't do to simply be dismissive of it in the simplest possible terms. There's something else going on. And people have said to me, like, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand why it is that Donald Trump won. What is the other side thinking? It's a good question to ask. I'm glad I'm not the only one who's been asking it. But I think that's the point. The point is understanding both sides. And while there may be extremes, while you do have people who are on the extreme right and the extreme left, I think most people fall somewhere in the middle, like myself. They're people who are capable of thinking, capable of using their brains, which I would like to believe I am. And they sort of understand that there's merit to both sides and they have to be heard, but the truth lies somewhere in between. I don't think that's where most people lie. It's not that people are, are there aren't two kinds of people in the world, right or left, uh, good or evil, religious or scientific. Uh, even a person who claims they're on one side really isn't. But the third kind of person is somebody who understands that there is both of these sides and they manage to bring both points of view into themselves and are able to talk from a higher plane of understanding. As pretentious as that sounds. And I think it's the extent that, that people are able to do that. Um, that is the opposite. This is why I agree. The more extreme the opposites get, the extreme right and the extreme left, those are both basically the same manifestations of two different things. If you're on either extreme and you believe either extremist ideology, um, you are effective, you're effectively saying, I'm not going to think, and I'm trying to make myself harmonious to one side, and I'm trying to remove all logical contradictions from myself and from the world. And I'm trying to force that on society. Those two things are not opposites. They are doing the same thing in, in, in different ways and about different things. The opposite of that is the person who's able to say, I can see. Uh, that both extremes are wrong, but there's truth in both of them, so I'm going to take them into myself. And so just the way that you say, okay, well, there seems to be a, a rise um, in conservative extremism after Trump gets elected. Like, it seems like that suddenly starts getting a voice and coming up. Uh, in response to that, you get something like uh, Antifa which is the extreme left's position, which is basically saying, use violence to shut down Nazis. So you have kind of a rise in Nazi rhetoric. You have a corresponding rise in anti-Nazi uh, rhetoric from the other side. 
because society likes balance. But of course, those two things are roughly the same thing. They're both groups that argue that we should employ some kind of violence to get rid of the other side, if you will. They're not really opposites. They're opposites on one particular spectrum, but there's another spectrum orthogonal to it on which they are basically on the same side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum are people who realize that we have to understand both sides. And I've been seeing more of that lately, more centrism. So as the opposites get more extreme and as they grow more people towards them, the middle gets bigger as well to balance out the extremes. It's interesting that this this seems to me something that we don't have to specifically engineer in society. This is something that just naturally happens. The way when our own brains sort of get out of whack, um, there's the unconscious that tries to correct it, tries to restore balance to our own selves. I've been reading a lot of Carl Jung lately, which I have talked about, but one of the reasons I like his writing is because it's very, very difficult to nail down exactly what he's saying. It seems like in one sentence he may make one point, and in the next sentence he may make the complete opposite point. On the surface, it seems kind of hard to to quite get. Um, but probably that was his intent. Later when he was writing in one of his letters, he said that he always strove for a duality of thought when he was writing because he was concerned that people might just take what he said and run with it as dogmatic truth. And he was like, that's not the way human beings are. They are a dualism. We as a collective are a dualism and individuals are our dualism. So you have to, you have to sort of go with the tension of the opposites. You have to balance that. That has to be present in order for you to have any influence. Which is, I think, a good thing to do. I mean, like I said, I mentioned Christianity. You also have like uh, Radiohead. I remember debates about what their lyrics meant. Questions about Lost. What does all that stuff mean? That isn't necessarily attention of opposites, but uh, ambiguity. If you give people ambiguity that they can debate over, then they will. Something like that will succeed. It will persist longer in culture because human beings are naturally conflicted. Even if they think they're being consistent and they've reconciled themselves to uh, something that isn't self-contradictory, it still is. We're all walking piles of contradictions. If you think about how many opinions that you yourself hold, uh, there's no way you could actually sit there and compare all of them to every other one and make sure that there aren't some logical inconsistencies. It just cannot be done. There's too many of them. So we're all multitudes and we all sort of disagree with each other, but they all kind of exist in a harmony anyway. And we're all pretty comfortable with that. 
And we all seem to think that we're consistent with ourselves, that we're all rational. It actually was kind of uh, reassuring to me. I watched the last two episodes of this version of Les Miserables that I watched um, last night and this morning, uh, the PBS one. Um, I watched them this morning, and those were the episodes that cover the June Rebellion that took place in Paris in, uh, I want to say, 1830, 1832, I believe. And of course, this is this is people who are rebelling because they want the republic. They're saying down with the monarchy. Let's restore the republic. You know, the uh, you know trying to bring back the spirit of the French Revolution. Restore a form of democracy, standing up for the common man. And of course, I know this because I've studied history. But watching the riots and the protests, I shouldn't say riots, but the protests erupt in response to George Floyd in this country, of course were problematic because there are certainly elements that come to the surface that had otherwise been latent and they don't really represent cries for racial justice so much as they're just opportunists looking to make noise and they can because suddenly that's happening everywhere. And of course, there's always the concern that even with lots of protesting, which leads to some rioting and looting and, you know, general disorder, um, that that might cause problems, that might, that might destabilize things as they are. But I don't have those fears anymore. That was kind of making me anxious for a while, but this is just a matter of course. This is just the way human beings are. If the government seems corrupt and it seems to have power that it's not wielding effectively or, or um, say moralistically, then of course people are going to rebel against such an authority as they should. As uh, it says in the constitution, it's like in the first paragraph. I think like, if, if the government ends up not serving the people, the people should be able to change it. I don't think it says they should be able to overthrow it through a violent revolution, but it does say it should be modified. It's an open system. And of course, any sort of system is very, very difficult to modify from the inside. It's very, very possible that there will come a time when that system is no longer serving us for some reason, and there has to be some sort of forceful um, protest against it. I don't think that's what we're seeing out there. I think there are elements of that. There are elements of anarchy, like the stuff we saw in Seattle. But that's not most of it. I think it's just people clamoring for clamoring for racial justice. And it, it sees that there are racist elements in our government seemingly at the highest level of our government. It seems like we have a very, a, if not a racist individual, then somebody who's not willing to stand up against racism where he sees it. 
and that uh, this is just what happens. You know, uh, people people protest generally peacefully uh, for these kinds of reforms to bring attention to these problems. And that's good. You want that conflict. That's how you know people care. That's actually where I ended up. While I was kind of concerned by some of the reports that I was hearing about the George Floyd protests turning somewhat acrimonious uh, in the wake of it, I sort of realized that that's good. I mean, there are people out there who believe in something, that believe in racial equality, and they're willing to stand up for it in very, very large numbers. Now, it seems like the backlash that I hear from the right is that the people who are protesting, many of them don't really understand that there isn't as much systematic racial inequality or systematic racism in the system as they would think. But the thing is, they think that there is. The people who are protesting the George Floyd, they, they do believe there's corruption. And I think that there are reforms that need to be made to make it very, very clear what my position is. I think the protests we're seeing after George Floyd um, were a long time coming, and they're absolutely necessary. And uh, they are accomplishing things. The Confederate flag was removed from Mississippi's flag in the wake of this. That's good. Good changes. This is what we need. Um, but it's touching. It's, it's, it's good for me to know that there are people out there who, when, when they see racial injustice, they will stand up against the forces that they think are causing it. And it is of equal comfort to me that there are people on the other side who, while there may be some people on the left who want to tear down our system because they see it as being imperfect, there are people who still believe overall in our system and say that it's, there are elements of it that are worth preserving and worth defending. It may not be all elements. I wouldn't say the Confederacy is necessarily the best thing to preserve from the history of our union. Monuments to it, at the very least. But I can appreciate that both sides are doing it. There are people standing up for, for the system, and there are people standing up for places where the system is not serving the common man well enough. And I definitely fall more on the latter side. I believe that justice for the common person has to always be fought for because if not tended to, that will disappear very, very quickly. There are always elites who would do away with that if they had the power to do so. So if you're not an elite, you should really Take a position against that. Yeah, good talk. <laughs> um, yeah, feels good to get all that off my chest. Anyway, yeah. I'm gonna go find myself some uh, some stationery and uh, write my father uh, a note. I hope puts his mind at ease. As always, wherever you are, 
Uh, I appreciate you making it this far. If you listened all the way through all of that, bravo. Um, I appreciate you listening to my rambling. And of course, as I started off with, I'll conclude with, I hope you're doing well. Until next time, this is Jim signing off. Cheers.